0: Welcome to Sparks and Wiry Cries. Today we're listening to soprano Lennica Rauten and pianist Tom Janssen. Yes, we just listened to them
1: sing Duparc's "L'invitation au Voyage, which is the invitation to the voyage. And by the
0: way, I'm Martha Goof, and here is Erica Switzer. That's right. This is one of DuParc's songs. If you know a song by Duparc, this is it. Probably. Yeah. I think I've played it, you've sung it. Yeah. Right? I've sung it before, and I would say it's 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 about the quintessential
1: French song for my for my take, um, it's sensual, mysterious, beautiful, and highly refined. And it's the kind of piece that's so beautiful that everybody wants to perform it. It's just stunningly beautiful. Uh, and
0: the topic is, in fact, very adult. There's a lot of sex in this song. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, to help us get us in the mood, let's have a translation of the beautiful poem by Baudelaire here in the words of Edna Saint Vincent Millay.
1: Yes, this is her translation, and uh, opposite to what I just said, I think that she has, in fact, taken away some of the sensualness of the poem in the translation. However, it is still a stunning and beautiful rendition. Invitation to the voyage. Think, would it not be sweet to live with me all alone, my child, my love? Sleep together, share all things in that fair country you remind me of. Charming in the dawn, there, with half-withdrawn, drenched, mysterious sun appears in the curdled skies, treacherous as your eyes shining from behind their tears. There, restraint and order bless luxury and voluptuousness. See their voyage past, to their moorings fast, on the still canals asleep, these big ships, to bring you some trifling thing they have braved the furious deep. Now the sun goes down, tinting dyke and town, field, canal, all things in sight, hyacinth and gold, all that we behold slumbers in its ruddy light. There, restraint and order bless luxury and voluptuousness.
0: It's a beautiful poem already in this translation. It's quite unusual, actually, to get to enjoy uh, such a skilled um, wordsman, if we can call it that.
1: translation yeah fantastic great uh at any rate the Baudelaire version the original version uh is taken from a book of poetry his masterwork called Les Fleurs du Mal or um I don't know how that translates exactly I mean the literal translation is the flowers of of evil, the evil flowers, something like that. Anyways, Les Fleurs de Mal was first published in 1857.
0: Typical of Baudelaire, these words are evocative and sensual or lurid at times. Okay. (laughs) Six of the poems, in fact, in it were
1: censored. The French government accused them as being outrageous to public morality. I bet that increased sales. Oh yeah, I think it really did. So even though all six of those poems were deleted from the published version, the hubbub created enough of a stir that Baudelaire was now famous, and his poems sold like hotcakes. And if you're listening outside, I think that's a truck rumbling past to the apartment. Could
0: be a dump truck. (laughs) Yep. So he was a skilled marketer as well, is what we're saying. Not only a poet, but uh, he knew what people were looking for.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, when he used to go to do his, uh, his poetry readings in the cafes, he used to, at least he, I don't know if it was a joke, or at least he used to say that he was going to title, or he was going to publish all of his poems under the title of Les Lesbians, or The Lesbians. For what reason? I'm thinking shock and awe. And I would think that even in today's world, that,
0: that would be a little bit shocking. Maybe. I'd like to hear some of these shocking words. Yeah, I have just a little, little
1: bit of one of those poems, um, but I think it's going to give you a little bit of taste of it. We're not talking about lesbians in this one. In fact, we're talking about uh, vampires. Of course, vampires, (laughs) why not? Yeah, that's good. Um, So this one is called The Vampire's Metamorphosis, and it's only just four lines of the entire poem, which is much longer. I, I have moist lips, and I know the art of losing old conscience in the depths of a bed. I dry all tears on my triumphant breasts, and make old men laugh with the laughter of children. Wow. Yeah.
0: But back to l'invitation au voyage. Mm. Right. So, Baudelaire in 1847 was apparently sent away by his father to Calcutta, India, in an effort to reform his immoral behavior. Yeah. Tell me more about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that immoral behavior, um, it sort of consisted of, or it didn't sort of consist, it consisted of dallying with prostitutes squandering an inheritance, racking up debt for clothing and drinking. Uh, and uh, he was there for less than a year, but I have to say that, at least from all accounts, it influenced his writing,
0: uh, and it didn't cure him of his ailments. In fact, it fueled the fire. I'm curious about what his dad was thinking exactly, to try and give him discipline by sending him away on his own to a foreign land.
1: Yeah, it was sounds... it reverse psychology? I don't know. It sounds... Like, n- not the best idea, at least. And...
0: Well, it sounds a lot more fun than being grounded. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> at any rate, I think the influence of that travel is all over the text an Invitation Voyage. Um, the text is set in the Dutch East Indies. Um, it really spreads to the world of the imagination um, as far as where the text goes. We don't know how much of what he writes about he actually experienced, but... Um, at any rate, why don't we
0: talk about the music a little bit? Sure. You know, I was struck when you read the translation of the poem by the words, their restraint and order, less luxury and voluptuousness. And I was struck by, I think, just the proximity of the words restraint and voluptuousness, because hmm. they seem like opposites in, in some sense. And they strike a sort of balance poetic balance and it's a similar it reminded me of the piano part in this song because mm. there's this sense of balance between the hands you have rotation in the left and the right hand in opposite directions your arms are in front of you um doing like a mirror image kind of thing mm. and and that kind of balance is really what i associate with the piece oh, that's... I, I think du Parc must have taken that from the poem
1: i think yeah that's that's a really fantastic observation um and similarly when I was doing a little bit of research for this song, I came across a quote of Graham Johnson. As a side note, Graham Johnson is probably the grandfather, the uh, the lexicon, the encyclopedic mind. and The
0: all-knowing. Yes,
1: the yes. all-knowing, all-powerful. He's that guy behind the microphone <laughs> in The
0: Wizard of Oz.
1: That's right. Yeah. I think he is the great and powerful. <laughs> he is a pianist who has written numerous, numerous books, uh, has performed with, I would say, Uh, Every recite, probably every lover of art song, every singer of Mm -hmm. art song, he uh, is just a phenomenal, phenomenal person and lover of the art song genre. Anyways, uh, I came across this quote of his and I thought it mirrors a little bit of what you're saying and it says it very beautifully. But here is no unbridled orgy, for there are undreamed of refinements among these pagans, purity as well as decadence, rigor as well as sensuality concision at the same time as expansiveness. In all French song, only Duparc has the musical language to find the key to such a text and turn the lock.
0: Fantastic. Indeed.
1: Yep. Uh, I think he kind of touches a little bit on the fact that, uh, well, I'm not sure if he touches on it, but uh, maybe in part of his other um, writing, that the physical landscape uh, becomes a metaphor for other things. And I think that happens really effectively here with Duparc. And... Um, it's an idea that is not new. It certainly happens in the music of Schubert and Schumann, um, where what you're looking at is actually part and parcel to what's going on in the mind.
0: Mm. Mm. Sort of like you are where you're, you are from. Exactly. Like Goethe wrote, Kennst du das Land? Do you know the land? He's in fact asking, or she, Mignon, who speaks these words, is asking, Do you know me? Exactly, exactly. I think that's,
2: that's yeah.
1: just what, what Baudelaire and Duparc are depicting here. Yeah. Um, So Du Parc himself was a bit of a character as well. He composed only until the age of 37, and of course lived a lot longer than that, Um, and his complete body of existing song literature is only 17 songs. However, he probably wrote a lot more. He destroyed many of them himself, thinking that they were either not good enough, that he had moved on from that time in life, and that musical representation was um, not what he wanted to be remembered for. Mm.
0: I find that I don't know, on one side I understand because I think if you're a composer you want to put your best out there at all times. I can yeah. I can sort I have sympathy for that feeling. But at the same time it's tragedy because du Park wrote such beautiful songs and if there could have been another dozen or two dozen <sighs> songs that we could enjoy today, how wonderful would that be for us? Yeah, I totally agree.
1: He wrote in a letter to a friend kind of explaining this. This is actually about his um His opera that was unfinished and that he later destroyed, he writes, having lived 25 years in a splendid dream, the whole idea of musical representation has become, I repeat to you, repugnant. The other reason for this destruction, which I do not regret, was the complete moral transformation that God imposed on me 20 years ago and which, in a single minute, obliterated all of my past life. Since then, my opera Rusalka, not having any connection with my new life, should no longer exist.
0: That worked out well for Dvořák, but uh, <laughs> exactly, but not for Duparc, not for us.
1: Yeah. So his music was considered by many to be some of the very best in the repertoire, and certainly L'Invitation au Voyage," I think, is one of his best. And we are very glad that
0: that song survived, mm-hmm. at any rate. So we got off talking for a long time about Duparc right. and Baudelaire and French song. Let's return to the focus of our podcast today, which is Lenica and Tom. Exactly. I met Lenica and Tom in 1999 in Baden-by-Wien, which is a little town just south of Vienna. And that was at the Franz Schubert Institute, which is a five-week-long German song masterclass. A very, very intensive one. Poetry lessons in the morning, masterclass in the morning, coachings all afternoon, masterclass in the evening. Whoa. Twelve-hour days, five Whoa. weeks straight. There's wow. two so-called days off. One day you go hiking, the other day you go to museums. It's fantastic. It's exhausting, but okay. it's it's like German song boot camp. But uh, <laughs> but it's it's wonderful. Anyways, uh, check it out on their website. Go. It's it's great. A lot of our evenings were spent together there, uh, unwinding from those long days, drinking wine in the wine gardens in the surrounding countryside, and that's how I really got to know Tom and Lenica. We also ended up spending time together in classes in Amsterdam. One, for example, with Ellie Ameling at Concertgebouw. And Ellie Ameling is a name that I often connect with Lenica's, because Lenica has studied with her, but also simply because she is of that same uh, ilk. She is a Dutch lyric soprano, uh, and she is very much the pride of her country, as Ellie Ameling was. And um, it, is, it was a real joy for me to get to know Lenica 10 years ago, and now, 10 years later, to hear the developments in her voice, it's really a thrill.
1: Yeah, and I would say that Tom and Lenica are a fantastic musical duo as well. Tell us a little bit about Tom as well.
0: Well, they met uh, when Lenica was studying song in or studying singing in Alkmaar. Tom was her teacher, her coach, and a year later they started working together professionally. And that was all told twelve years ago. Wow! So they have kind of a, a musical relationship similar
1: to the one that you have with Tyler.
0: It's true. They are also married and have been enjoying two kinds of collaboration for (laughs) a long time now. Um, I asked them a few questions just because I was curious what kind of answers I would get. I asked, what have you learned over the years of working together? And she said, actually, we don't discuss that much in detail when we work. Hmm. Very basics about tempo, dynamics. But other than that, they really like to let the music speak for itself, to be spontaneous during concerts, to be free with their musicality, and and it's interesting. The some of the best performers I know say that same thing. Oh, it's never cool. about the planning; it's always about the spontaneity. That's cool. And making choices in the middle.
1: At, well, that's certainly you have to be more exposed that way. Yeah. But that's that's amazing that she can do that. Yeah. Well, both, that both of them can do that yeah. and play off each other. I imagine just because they know each other so well, that kind of surprise is never going to be as 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 huge as if you were working with someone for the first time. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I also asked how they manage working together while being married and if there's any special challenges there.
2: Hmm.
0: And her response was, "Thank God we don't argue." What? Not about music and not about anything else. Exclamation mark. I think that's amazing. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> Lenica, really? <laughs> But she does say that they worked completely professionally together during rehearsals and concerts and that in that circumstance they are just singer and pianist and not a married couple. So I say bravo for being able to divide those two roles. Wow, That's that amazing. is, wow. Some of their favorite performing experiences include uh, their first recital together in Concert Capal, which was sold out. Mm. That's amazing as a debut recital there. And there was a memorable incident where Tom injured his arm right before a recital in Frankfurt and was unable to turn his own pages. Amazing that he could still play the piano, but it was turning the pages that was the problem. (laughs) I know, I do find that (laughs) remarkable. And the fact that it was an issue meant that he was probably trying to turn them himself. Right. Because if he'd had a page turner, I think that wouldn't have been a story after all. You know what I mean? So I'm kind of curious what that looked like. She has a bunch of CDs out too, or they both have a bunch of CDs out too as well, right? Absolutely, yep. Yeah. There's the 2005 Melodie Francaise that we're enjoying today. And coming out in 2010, there will be two CDs. One, the songs of uh, Johannes Brahms on Brilliant Classics, and another CD of Concert arias and Mozart's Exsultate Jubilate with the Concertgebouw Chamber Orchestra.
1: Go, Lenica and Tom. That's awesome.
0: Next we're going to hear a song from Robert Schumann. This is taken from a recording a few years ago of theirs, actually recorded in the Konzertgebäu. This is Opus 89 number 6, Rosaline, Rosaline. A charming little song. Mm -hmm. Here's the text in English. Little rose, must you have thorns? I fell asleep once by a shady brooklet and had such a sweet dream. I saw in the golden sunshine a rose without thorns. I picked it and delicately kissed it. Thornless rose. I woke up and looked around. If it were only here, where can it be? All around in the sunlight, there were only roses with thorns. And the brooklet laughed at me. Stop with your dreaming. Remember this well. Roses will always have thorns. <laughs> and thus it was ever so. And thus it was. There are lots of songs about roses. Can we think of some? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh,
1: let's see. We got Grieg, Opus 48, to a sight. I think the fourth That's right, song, the, fourth withered, th- song?
0: The, the withered roses. Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, das Rosenband.
0: That's right. Strauss and Schubert, said that. true. Very different settings, but both absolutely beautiful. Yep. What we else? We have Mahler's O Rösschen Rot, Ohrlicht from the Second Symphony. Oh, amazing. Yeah, and actually that one starts out in a very similar way to the Schumann because the voice is very exposed, alone, mm. singing the, wo- the word rose uh, out into nothingness. Mm. Um, Berlioz, The Ghost of the Rose. Oh, yeah, of Spectrum course, from mm-hmm. J.D.T., right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, the last rose of summer.
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And the third song of Dichterliebe, which just, that's like the <laughs> first thing that we both sh- shouted out when we were trying to think of rose songs, which, which, as you pointed out, was what, not a rose it's song? It's not really. even about roses.
0: Yeah. Anyways, okay. Yeah. Roses are a symbol, of course, for a lot of things. Um, in this particular song, it's about the thorns and the the way that you can be injured by the most gentle and beautiful hmm. thing, the dark side of love the dark side of beauty, the dark side of pleasure, these are inescapable truths. And the tension between the good and the bad, if you will, is really palpable in the push and pull of Schumann's phrasing.
1: Totally. And I think it's actually really palpable in Lenica and Tom's interpretation. It's
0: direct, it's honest, it's really an excellent performance. Yeah, I totally agree. They embrace the dance rhythms wholeheartedly and yet there are these moments of reflection that they intersperse and it provides that kind of hesitant euphoria that I always associate with Schumann. There you go, is coining a phrase now. Schumannian (laughs)
1: hesitant euphoria.
0: (laughs) That's right, that's Schumann for me. And Schumann marks this song not fast. I love his non-directions at the beginning of pieces. He tells you what not to do instead of what you should do, leaving, of course, uh, a great deal of artistic license to the artist.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh,
0: what is this song from? Is it from a group of songs or a cycle? Yeah, it's from Opus 89, uh, which is an yet another cycle written in 1840, the year of song. This is the sixth song of Opus 89, which is a group of songs all on the texts of Wilfried von der Neuen, which was a pseudonym for Wilhelm Schupf. The six songs are very diverse Filled with experimental textures in the piano. Um, they're really unknown, actually, because the sixth song is for sure the most famous of all of them. And as I listened through the rest of the opus, I was struck by what a shame it is that we don't know the other songs. The fourth song, for example, Abschied vom Walde, is beautiful. It has these, that true Schumann um, Eusebian lyricism. Wait, wait, now, so we talked a little bit about Eusebius and Floristan, but remind us again what that means. Right. Well, Robert Schumann suffered from some mental health issues, and one of the gifts of that was that he developed um, these characters that he composed from the perspective of. So there was Florestan, the fiery, the wild one, hmm. the extrovert, uh, and then there was Eusebius, the dreamer, the introvert, the thoughtful one. Hmm. And cool. often, not always, but often Schumann's songs will fall more or less into one of those categories, um, and like I said, number four, typical Eusabian, and then in number five, it's much more like Florestan. "Ins Freie" is the song. Uh, it has this martial flair about it. Cool. And number six, this line would probably be Back to Eusebien, what is it, or a mixture? Well, you know, that's funny, because Chopin had died a year before this song was written, and what the song really is, is a mazurka, Mm. and so I think, you know, Schumann was such a champion of his contemporaries, he brought the music of Schubert to the people in Germany, he brought Chopin to his friends, and I think that this was, in a way, some kind of homage to, to Chopin. Very cool, very, very cool.
1: So, from Germany, we're going to travel back to France uh, and visit uh, again another very famous piece. Um, this is probably one of the most famous of Faure's songs, Gabriel Faure, uh, Claire de Lune. It is written, the text is written by Verlaine, and uh, I would say that again, this song is synonymous with French song. Or maybe even French music. Claire de Lune has been set many, many times. Most famously by Debussy and Fauré. Um, it is uh, the name. It's the name of a song by the rock group Trail of the Dead. Trail of Dead. It is the name of a band from Minnesota. Clair de Lune. Uh, it's also the theme of many instrumental pieces. Even if you don't know anything about Verlaine's poetry or anything about Fauré or Debussy, you've probably heard the title Clair de Lune. Uh, at any rate, so we're going to hear. Lenka and Tom's version by Gabriel Fauré. Let's just talk for a second about the poet and the composer. Um, they both suffered from poor health, <laughs> didn't they all? Yeah, apparently, of oh, these were <laughs> romantics.
0: <laughs> right. Fauré suffered in his later years from a disease that affected his hearing and it eventually distorted sounds at the high and low end of the spectrum, and I think it made listening to music for him very, very painful. Mm. And that affected his compositions by yeah. limiting the range in which he composed.
1: Yeah, so his later music is all very sort of restricted in range. This piece is not uh, a later piece. It's kind of square in the middle of what he does, but uh, it's it's kind of interesting to note that. Uh, about Verlaine, that he... Um, his life ended in drug addiction, alcoholism, and poverty. He abused absinthe. Uh, he lived in hospitals and slums. He even attacked his own mother under the influence of the drink. Yeah, uh, wow. So there's, there's a lot going on with these, these guys. However, we are, again, grateful for what they left behind. I'm a really big fan of Foray. Erika? I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I find it unbelievably beautiful. And aside from beautiful, I think we can all agree that his music is beautiful. I find his music to be actually one of my favorite things to perform. I find it complex, subtle, the shifting harmonies in his later music is something that I don't hear really in any other type of music. That oddly enough, the closest thing you could find to the way that the harmonies shift is Wagner, except that... Um, except that it's so not Wagner that it's it's kind of laughable to say that. Um,
0: yeah, Erica? Yeah, okay, I will admit that his shifting harmonies are growing on me. I will say that. But I'll just tell you what my experience was. I came to it relatively early on, as a lot of young musicians do, because voice teachers often will suggest 4A songs to their young students because they're... Not too difficult to sing, but their the rhythms are pretty straightforward. They're melodic, exactly. There's... You're learning interesting things, the triplets, or you're learning, yeah, absolutely. Basics. Um, but what I, what I couldn't at all understand when I started out playing his music was why on earth it was a good thing to play without rubato. Mm. I could not get my brain around that. I couldn't get my body around it either. It Mm. felt so foreign. It felt literally like I was wearing a straitjacket while playing piano. And that's, it's just not a good feeling. It's so funny. I felt exactly the same way about Schubert. Everyone had already told me, had
1: always told me that Schubert should be played very strictly. You must do everything that's on the page. If it's not on the page, then it it, probably didn't want it to be there. And in that way, I felt very restricted when I played when I sang Schubert. But I didn't feel that way with Foray, and it's really interesting that, you, that yeah, you say
0: that. Yeah, it is. But I think we all, as musicians, have composers that we feel more in tune with, and yep. and those that we don't. And and I just I have to say, maybe one day it'll be, you know be like that vegetable you never wanted to eat and then suddenly it's all you ever want to eat you, <laughs> you know suddenly like uh, cilantro doesn't taste like soap anymore <laughs> right or like oh my god i actually like olives <laughs> or you know it could happen yeah but uh it hasn't happened yet not yet Yeah. the closest i have come was when i heard lenica and tom perform A songs last year uh and they really did manage to change my mind about at least listening to Four A. I have not changed my mind about playing it yet, but uh, I may get there. Well, then that's a great transition. Let's
1: listen to them, and hopefully we will persuade everyone who is out there in podcast land. Take it away.
0: Yes, Thank you, Lenica and Tom, for convincing me that Foray was great. (laughs) François Leroux has contributed incredible amounts to scholarship, understanding, and performance of French song. I have had the great pleasure of working with him uh, several times now, twice at the Poulenc Academy in Tours, which he is the artistic director of. This is a 10-day-long masterclass that happens in August of every year, it focuses on the music of Poulenc and in mm-hmm. addition one or two other composers and those, two, those other composers rotate each summer. So, in fact, there are people that have been going there six, seven years in a row, mm-hmm. each time discovering new repertoire. It really is a wonderful mm-hmm. thing. Noelle Lee and Jeff Cohen, two American pianists who have been in, uh, in Paris for most of their lives, um, assist Francois and are extremely knowledgeable and generous coaches. Cool. So I recommend that to anyone looking to study French song. And he knows a lot about Foray. He knows a lot about everything uh, yes. French. and <laughs> Well, and, <laughs> and we've and, heard
1: him in recital a number of times, and that, I mean, that is something you want to go hear. If you yeah. ever hear that he is playing singing a recital, yeah. you want to go to that. Yes,
0: he knows exactly how to bring these texts to life in a way that is completely unaffected, but very, very true yeah. to the music, to the composer, to the poet, and... Um, he sent me these words to help us get into the world of Claire de Lune. Published in 1887, four years after Debussy's first setting, it is for me more a piano piece with words explaining how to listen to it than a song with piano accompaniment. He finds this piece to be very Verlennian, meaning you have to listen differently to nocturnal reality. Hmm. That that uh, That sentence is is difficult for me. Well, I just ha- I had to look. I had
1: to do a little bit of research on it, basically, about what does what does Verlaine mean, and uh, what I can come up with. And I think the most obvious answer, and I hope it's the right one, is that he was a symbolist poet, yes. and uh, along with Ambu, uh, his partner. Uh, uh, with the, who, had, who he had a very tempestuous relationship with, uh, evidenced by the fact that he actually ended up shooting him uh, twice and then went to prison for the offense.
0: These guys! I amazing. know!
1: I know! It never <laughs> ends! Um, we're both part of the Symbolist Movement. Um, the idea is that it uses subtlety instead of precise
0: statement and, above all, evokes mood instead of depicting an exact scene. I think that's exactly right. You yeah. don't necessarily need... To understand. It's not like following a storyline. Exactly. It's getting impressions from the combinations of words. It's it's sort of feeling what's behind the poet. Exactly. And the poem. What else did he say? Well, he asked for no rallentando at the end, please. Very, like, foray. Yes. I believe uh, Tom and Lenica did observe that yep. request. He also <laughs> asked that the singer not breathe after Svelte to sing in one long phrase Les grands jets d'eau, Savelle parmi les marbres. And I just want to let you know that was very hard for me to read in French. I'm very self-conscious. Good about job. It. Good job. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, which actually, Lenica did breathe before Parmi. So, are we so, giving her a C plus or what? No, I'm giving her an A plus <laughs> exactly. And I'm going to say I think most people do breathe there, and that's in fact why Francois thinks and would like to get the message out that he prefers it when people don't breathe.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's an extremely long phrase, and I mean, you do what you do, and and yeah, and uh, it also could be that Lenika chose. To do it that way for other reasons yeah that's right
0: he also francois also said that this is one of the most smoky songs that foray ever wrote claire de lune is based on a kind of minuetto form and the original key is b-flat minor but foray put it up one tone higher a year later for the orchestral version for tenor voice it was intended then to be incorporated as number six of his comédie musicale masque et bergamasque in 1919.
1: Taken from a line taken
0: from a line from Claire de Lune. Sorry, exactly. It it is. And unfortunately this piece is never played. Um the suite is what is left of a big project that winneretta Singer, the princess princess uh, Princess de Polignac. Your French is fantastic. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> terrible. Uh who was Foray's patron, and by the way, Singer as in the Singer sewing machine heiress wow. to that great fortune. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Princesse de Polignac asked Foray to carry this out directly with Verlaine, but Verlaine was already in very bad health, and uh, the project was never completed. Oh. I think to sum up Claire de Lune, there are two very important words. The ambiguity of happiness and sadness. That is what Foray brings to the music in... Um, modal mixture is the technical term for it, but but when there's constant shifting between major and minor. That is an ambiguous use hmm. of music, of tonality. It's in the poem itself, in Verlaine's words. There's ambiguity. There's happiness and sadness, and and it is of course just terribly French to uh, enjoy both feelings at the same time and say, say la vie.
1: To close out the songcast for today, we have a final piece for you. It's called Les Chemins de l'Amour, which translates to the Paths of Love. Performed by Tom and Lenica, this song by
0: Francis Poulenc. It's a waltz song that Bernac hesitated to include in his book about Poulenc's songs. But what he did say was, was to ask for nonchalant elegance, pseudo-Viennese swing, gypsy-inspired charm, and of course, without any bad taste. Yeah, Lenica and Tom bring exactly that and more. Our charming producer is Matthew Principe. Broadcasting and producing these podcasts while artistically fulfilling, is an investment by both myself and Martha. If you'd like to help subsidize these costs or just get in touch with us, please email songcast at marthaguth.com and we'll be in touch about how we can work together. Again, that's songcast at marthaguth.com.
1: You've been listening to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We're your hosts, Martha Guth and Erica Switzer.